Well, we're continuing our study in the life and times of Elisha, and we stopped short last week of completing chapter 7, and of course, through through the days, it grew. So uh, we will um, cover chapter 7, verses 16 to the end, and then we'll start chapter 8 today. The title will be, once we get to it, The Shunammite Cared For by God, and you'll remember last week that we considered God's word through Elisha that the famine and the siege of Samaria would come to an end and the grain would be available and we uh, ended around the promise being fulfilled. So we'll start reading at 2 Kings 8. Uh, Let's pick it up at verse 16. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Aramaeans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. It happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. Well, picking it up there at verse, the end of verse 16, those beautiful words, according to the word of the Lord. And really, all of these uh, chapters and stories are about God's work, and I've tried to name them the the titles at least reflecting that it's not so much about Elisha and what he was doing, but about God and what he did. And of course here verse 16 ends with this, this fulfillment of the prophecy according to the word of the Lord. And we're immediately going to find in verse 17, now the king appointed. So we have this sandwich, if you will, according to the word of the Lord, the king appointed, and then we'll see just as the man of God had spoken. There's sort of this sandwich uh, between the king's appointments, the word of the Lord, and after the king's appointment by the word of the Lord. And I was thinking generally that we could learn uh, seven lessons today. Behind every appointment of men or man is the Lord's purpose. Behind every appointment by man is the Lord's purpose. And we see it all through the Bible. We see it in our own lives. And Tuesday is what? Election day. So ultimately, whatever happens, we know the Lord's purpose is behind it. And here, it is explicit, and we saw all through this chapter and the previous chapters, that God is behind every story, accomplishing his purpose. But it's interesting, nonetheless, now the king appointed. So it's sandwiched right in there. So so chew on that. Of course, God works all things after the counsel of his own, what? 
will. Yes, his own will. We move from the promised blessing that he would bless Israel by ending the siege and and famine in Samaria with this curse that is coming upon the king's royal officer. So verse 17, now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned, or his right-hand man, another translation, to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. It happened just as the man of God had spoken to him, saying, the two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. There's something shocking, and the more I was looking at these verses, there's a shocking irony that the king's right-hand man was given this duty to oversee the traffic as all the Israelites were going out to plunder the camp of the Arameans to get the food, to get the horses, to get the stuff. The the king appoints his right-hand man to oversee where at the gate and what was coming through the gate, the life-giving food, but yet at that very gate he is trampled to death. The king advanced the officer, but the Lord reversed it. He was put over the gate, yet he was trampled underfoot by at the gate. He was, he was put over the gate, yet trampled underfoot at the gate. There's a divine irony here that this man, do you notice the words again? Now the king appointed, but the people trampled. The king appointed, but the people trampled. And it's all at the gate. There's this reversal again that we noted last week. And we've, we've heard the words many times. Man proposes, but God what? Disposes, yes. Man proposes, but God disposes. Or as our good friend William Cooper said, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. God has a purpose and whatsoever comes to pass. Even in this man's punishment, the king promoted him, but God, as it were, demoted him. He was watching over the gate, bringing the life-giving food, and yet he was trampled to death because of his unbelief. So let's focus on this this a bit, this trampling for his unbelief. It was a rebuke from God to this man, and yet it's interesting that the the verse here, uh, 17 and then 18, refers to Elisha speaking to the king. When the king came down, he spoke to the king. So not only was the man punished, but the king was rebuked as well, because these were the words spoken to the king. Not only the blessing of the famine ending, but the punishment for unbelief. We stated last time, beware of not believing the word of God. We could consider this illustration of this unbelieving officer in the words of Romans 11.20, Israel was broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. So when the Gentiles were brought in and Israel was rejected by God in the New Covenant, they were broken off for their unbelief. 
And yet, how might we respond? Well, look at us. No, don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. But fear. Fear God. Be sober. That's, again, that's Romans eleven twenty. Well, this officer, he did not fear God. He did not believe God. He doubted God. And, and we'll hit those specific words in a moment. But this man, this officer, is like a warning sign. What are some warning signs you may have no, noticed on the road this week, or maybe even driving here this morning? Did you see any warning signs? Pardon? Detour. And why do you use a detour? To avoid construction. We have a lot of that. What are some warning signs you might see on the highway? I know it's early. Pardon? Speed limit, that's a warning. Slow down. If the road is so windy and you were going 45 and it says 25, what happens if you disregard that warning sign? You could crash, you could die. And people like this officer are warning signs. We don't know his name. We know very little bit about him, but he is a warning sign. Do you remember a a specific woman in the Old Testament, that in the New Testament, we hear those words, remember Lot's wife. Or we might say, remember the unbelieving officer. These people are warning signs, warning signals to be careful. Watch out. Don't be unbelieving like this officer. Often we don't even have their names, yet this man is given several verses to show that unbelief will be rebuked by God. So we might ask ourselves, how do we respond to God's word? Do we believe it? Do we trust in him? Or might we have pride or unbelief? Let us not be like this man. I came to Proverbs 13, 13. I love those when it lines up. 13, 13, easy to remember in my own reading. And and that proverb says, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. So this man did not love the word of the prophet. He despised it. He didn't believe in God, nor did the king, for that matter. But we don't hear from the king. But he was spoken to, and the king didn't say, Be quiet, uh, officer. The king was also unbelieving. We'll hear more about him as we move forward. But remember this unbelieving officer and be warned. Unbelief is serious business. And that's what the Roman Christians were told in Romans 11.20. Israel was broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Fear God and be warned. If you have unbelief, Hebrews warns us what will happen. It's a serious sin. And this man is about to have the consequence, we've already read it, he's trampled to death for his unbelief. Moving forward, verse 19 of chapter 7, There's the story is repeated. If we missed it, the Spirit of God provides a review of why the unbeliever, unbelieving officer died. For emphasis... Often when the Bible repeats something, we should really pay close attention. Verse 19, then the royal officer, it's going back in time, answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. That was the warning given at the beginning of the chapter. The Holman Christian Standard may be more accurate. It says, 
this captain had answered the man of God, look, even if the Lord were to make windows of heaven, could this really happen? There's a measure of sarcasm, definitely the unbelief. He didn't believe that God could do this. And he's, and, and it's grievous, and yet, again, we can find ourselves. We know what God has said in his word, but we often struggle with a measure of unbelief. Let us be warned. Remember this officer not to have the unbelief like he did. Of course, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we're warned. And that's interesting. That's a great verse in Hebrews, which warns against unbelief. And we have that whole chapter in Hebrews 11 about the people of faith. And so it's we're either believing God or we're not. We're having faith or we're having unbelief. So let us check ourselves, even as we will observe the Lord's Supper later today, or even through your week. Are you struggling in a particular way? Maybe because you're not trusting God. Maybe I'm not trusting God. I'm not believing what He has said in His Word. We have the promises of Scripture, which are many, and we have all of the instruction from Genesis to Revelation, do we believe it or not? This man was so close to enjoying God's bounty. The food was coming in, but did he enjoy one bite of it? No, he died on that same day. It's shocking. It reminded me of Ananias and Sapphira who were rebuked by God because they lied to the Holy Spirit and and God killed them. They did not have faith. They did not trust God. They were greedy and withheld. Well, a sobering ending uh, to this man, and verse 20 concludes it, and so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. It's grievous. It's a grievous story about unbelief and its consequences. Well, moving forward then to chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Second Kings, we'll read verses 1 through 6, which will be our text for the rest of this morning. Were there any questions or comments before we get into the next chapter? Okay, chapter 8, verse 1. Now Elisha, Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise! And go with your household and sojourn wherever you can sojourn. For the Lord has called for a famine. And it will even come on the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines And she went out to appeal to the king for her house and her field, and for her field. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Please, relate to me all the great things that Elisha has done. And as he was relating to the king how he had restored to life the one who was dead, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her field. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. 
When the king asked the woman, she related it to him. So the king appointed for her a certain official saying, Restore all that was hers and all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land even until now. An amazing story in just six verses. In chapter four, we met the Shunammite woman and her family. She was a prominent or great woman, apparently wealthy enough to have servants and animals and, and, and this field or fields land. And she cared for Elisha as he was coming through, maybe traveling to on different speaking engagements, different schools of the prophets. Remember, they made a little apartment for him, and she had uh, the bed and the chair and so forth, so he could stop there and rest. She was the epitome of a hospitable person. And she he wanted to bless her, and he said, uh, you have no kids, and he said, you're going to have a son. And she had a son, and what happened to that son? He died. And then what happened? He raised the son from the dead. And that's what story is being referred to here. This is the Shunammite. Now, we don't know uh, how much time uh, is between chapter 7 and 8. It's difficult to understand the chronology here. Uh, Some think that this chapter may have happened earlier. Uh, I'm taking it somewhat chronological, but it's up for debate. We don't always know. Is it gathered topically or chronologically? But nonetheless, Elisha tells the woman to arise and go. And we often hear and read about Elisha or even Elijah or the prophets telling people, go, go and do this, go and pick this up, go. And we see something of the prophet's role telling the people of God what to do, go here, go there, do this, pick up this, go get this, go get that. And we see it here. Once again, he was speaking to this apparently godly woman and he tells her, go with your household, go to this other place. Why does he tell her to go? Because the Lord called for a famine. The Lord summoned a famine. The Lord caused a famine. Now we talked about a famine, whether because of the lack of rain or the siege back in Samaria and what it led to. But this is a much larger situation. How many years would this famine be? Seven. Seven years of famine? That is intense. But frankly, it doesn't mention much about the famine. It's more focused on this woman, which is what we're going to do. Uh, some, the Holman Christian Standard, by the way, it says about this famine, which had already come to the land. Uh, again, I tried to read some uh, translations, and I couldn't determine uh, what is the correct translation. But again, some believe that this famine had already happened, began earlier, and he's picking it up mid-story. Uh, we don't know. But the Lord called for, proclaimed, summoned a famine. And you might do a comparison In chapter 7, we saw the king appointed his chief captain. And we'll see in verse 6 of this chapter 8, the king also appointed. So it's interesting, the king is appointing, and yet God is also appointing or proclaiming or summoning. There's potentially a, a good contrast, and we noted it at the beginning, but you can chew on that. 
Here, the Lord called for, proclaimed, or summoned a famine. Assuming this is chronological and the siege of the, of Samaria had, had ended and this was a brand new famine, and, and why did God cause famines? What, what was the, the root issue? He was punishing his people for their sins, for idolatry in particular. Yet their hearts are unchanged. We didn't read about a national repentance. Even after he blessed them, their hearts, and and definitely the king's heart, did not change. So lesson three, again, reading between the lines, woe unto those who continue to resist the Lord's rebukes or even the Lord's mercies. God rebuked them by having their chief capital besieged by the Arameans to the point that they had to eat a donkey's head and even these women ate their baby or babies and then he blessed them in spite of themselves and yet we read nothing of a national repentance. So woe unto those people who continue to resist the Lord's rebukes. These famines, these sieges were a rebuke punishing and correcting the people of God so that they might repent, but we have no record of that. It's grievous. They didn't repent. Their hearts were hardened. Matthew Henry said, neither the judgment nor the mercy of God had a due influence upon them. They should have been all in sackcloth and on their faces, Lord, forgive us. We're we're so sinful. We need to destroy these idols. They didn't do it. And even when he blessed them and gave them all the Aramean stuff, they they still didn't repent, apparently. Beware that sinful habits are not easily repented of, so don't start them. And we see it over and over. You read the history of Israel again and again and again. They return to their idols. And in some of the Psalms, you'll read those words, and again and again they went back. They went back again and again. And God would rebuke them. They'd repent temporarily, and then they'd go back again. Sinful habits are not easily repented of. Alexander White has a great little booklet, which are sermons he did on Bunyan's characters. So Bunyan had his characters in Pilgrim's Progress. Well, Alexander White, the Scottish preacher, he gave these Sunday night sermons at his church in Scotland, and he talks about the idea of action, habit, character. You do one thing, and then you repeat it, and it becomes a habit. Then, all of a sudden, you do it again, and it becomes part of your character. The Israelites, overall, were idolaters, and he punished them again and again and again. So we must take heed to deal with sin, especially if God convicts us and corrects us to not give it root because God takes it seriously. And that's what these famines teach us against his own people. She goes down to the Philistines. Apparently, they didn't have a famine. Apparently, there was enough food there. They were the pagans. Yet God's people had a famine. Verse 2. So the woman... The Shunammite arose and did according to the word of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Seven years. Lesson four. Like the Shunammite, let us practice prompt 
obedience. We saw it in Elisha when he was called. He went immediately to follow the Lord. We see it in this Shunammite and others when the prophet of God speaks, when the word of God is proclaimed, she, and we should imitate her, had this prompt obedience. I love the words. So the woman arose and did. God spoke through his prophet, go, and she went. When God says something, when we're having our devotions, when we're hearing the word of God preached and our conscience is is pricked, we ought to take action. We must take action. And this was no small action. She went away for seven years. Seven years of your life? That's no joke. She epitomizes James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. She was the effectual doer, literally a doer of a work. She did what God told her to do. And this, the, the edge of Philistia was at least 55 miles away. She may have went 100, 150 miles south and uh, was sojourning in the land of the Philistines of all places. You, you can let your mind think about all the battles that they, David had, and they were idolaters. They were not the people of God. And yet that's where she went. And again, apparently they received her. They didn't kill her. She comes back. God protected her in his providence. But she had this amazing obedience that it would be good for us to imitate. Prompt obedience. That we would take heed and take action. Verse 3. At the end of seven years, seven years goes by in just a few words. At the end of seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went out to appeal to the king for her, excuse me, for her house and for her field. The Lord had a preset end to the famine, seven years, and apparently it was on the dime as it were, the famine ended at seven years exactly, and she returns to Israel. Did she stop in the capital, Samaria? And I hope you, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, uh, not all of the cities are noted, but if you, I have a map, uh, the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and I asked John please to please do some a great slideshow in the future uh, showing us some of these places. But if you look at, if you have that map, the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, uh, Shunem is not on my map, but if you can, if you can spot Mount Tabor, it's just east of Mount Carmel. Well, that was about where Shunem was. She was a Shunemite from the town of Shunem. And if you go south, uh, you'll see the capital of Samaria. And then if you go southwest, you'll see the first city, uh, under the control of the Philistines, Joppa, and then Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, and so forth, all the way down to Egypt. So she traveled some distance uh, down to Philistia, maybe, you know, a hundred miles. Philistia has a long coastline. But then she comes back, maybe stopping at Samaria before she got home to Shunem. <clears throat> And it says that the woman returned and she went out to appeal to the king. She needed help. Apparently, someone or maybe the crown itself had taken over her land. 
It's unclear, we don't know why, but her house and her field was taken. And when you look back at the, the earlier chapters where she was taking care of her house, she was really this prominent woman who had uh, control. We're not sure why um, her husband was not more involved, but whatever the case, this woman was coming back, appealing to the king for her house and her field, and it reminds me of Proverbs 31. She considers a field and buys it. She was a woman of business. She had a field. She had servants. And she was uh, apparently a godly woman. We don't have all the details. But here she comes back to the king trying to get her house back, her land back. She appeals to him. Maybe her husband was dead. A lot of people conjecture that. Because in chapter 4 it says her husband was old. We don't know. She has this household. Uh, who, Who knows who all was in it. But at least it was her and her son... <clears throat> and she goes to the king. Now, the king has company. And some think it's, again, the chronology is difficult. I hope it's not confusing. But we'll see in, in chapter um, 8 and 9, Jehu, the next king. Uh, I believe it's Jehoram because you'll see Jehoram or Joram, his, his nickname, like Tom or Thomas. Uh, Joram or Jehoram. You'll see him mentioned in 8, 16, 21, 23 through 25, 28 and 29. I believe it's chronological. So the king, Jehoram, or Joram, verse 4, was talking with Gehazi. Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Please relate to me all the great things that Elisha had done. Now the last time we heard about Gehazi, he was punished by God and given what? Leprosy. The last words we heard about Gehazi was, he went out from Elisha's presence, a leper, white as snow. Now this gets a little bit complicated. He was Elisha's previous servant. It doesn't say that. Maybe he was known, again, if this is chronological, but he's known here as the servant of the man of God. Regardless, he's here in the presence of the king telling these stories about Elisha. Maybe the king summoned him. I want to know more about Elisha. Or maybe greedy Gehazi was trying to get something from the king. We don't know. We really don't. But the king wants to know all the great things that Elisha had done. And I'll take it this way in the fifth place. Beware of merely being curious about the things of God, yet maintaining an evil heart. Beware of merely being curious about the things of God, yet maintaining an evil heart. Uh, One author said he was curious, but not committed. Does that remind you of someone in the New Testament? Curious, but not committed. Herod. Herod loved to listen to John the Baptist. Mark says that he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist. Was he converted? Absolutely not. He was wicked. But he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist. I think Jehoram, and we'll see why in a moment was like this. He was curious. He wanted to hear all the great things, all the miracles that Elisha had done. Herod also, it says, he was very glad when he saw Jesus in Luke 23, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about Jesus and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. I think he's like King Jehoram. 
I think these men were just curious, wanting to see some miracle or meet the miracle worker or just hear something amazing. They didn't have faith in the miracle-making God. They wanted to to experience or see or at least hear these great stories. And some people, you've met them, are very curious about God. They want to hear and talk about and listen or maybe debate how many angels can sit on the head of a needle. That's curiosity, not faith. And I believe Jehoram will see is that type of man just like Herod. And remember, it's not so much about the great things that Elisha had done. It's the great things that God had done. God is at the center of these stories, not Elisha. Which the unbeliever will always miss. Always. Verse 5. As he was relating to the king, that's Gehazi, how he had restored to life the one who was dead. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her field. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. What timing. It just so happened when Gehazi was telling the story of the Shunammite, who shows up? The Shunammite and her son that was raised from the dead. Now, she had been in Philistia for seven years. Now, what are the odds that just on that day that Gehazi was telling the story that this woman and her son show up? What are the odds? Not very good odds, but God does not work on odds. I love, I love there, we see it often in the scripture. Behold, look at this, consider this. At this crazy moment, she shows up. We were just talking about her, and here she comes, walking up, appealing to the king. She's right in front of the king and Gehazi. Lesson six. As you read stories like this, lesson six, be captivated as you read the book of Providence. Be captivated, be amazed. Of course, praise God, worship God, study the details of God in history. This was no random event. She just didn't show up randomly. The Lord appointed it. It's amazing the timing. A few minutes later, the conversation may have ended between the king and Gehazi. She showed up with her son when she was being spoke about. Study the sovereignty of God in history and in your life. And maybe around the dinner table we can recount to each other some stories. I thought of one for myself. I trust it's appropriate. When I was in Korea in the army, I went to Seoul to visit some Christian friends. And I rode the bus about an hour and a half to get there. Well, I missed the last bus. And I'm stuck in Seoul, the the fifth largest uh, complex in the world, uh, population-wise, a massive city. And here I am, young, 20-year-old guy. I'm stuck in Seoul, and I don't know anyone. I don't know what to do. And and I prayed, Lord, help. I'm trying to find a a place to stay on post, on the army post. And I prayed, and I, I don't know what to do. And I go in this area, and I'm asking for help, and I can't find anything. And I walk out the door. And this husband and wife say, oh, do you need help? And I was like, well, yeah, I missed the bus back south and I'm, I'm trying to find somewhere to sleep. It was around 10 p.m. And they said, why don't you come over to our house and, and spend the night? 
First of all, I'm like, I don't know these people. I got a little bit nervous. But then I could see the hand of God. And they were on post. He was a government service person, a nice German couple. And they had me over to their house. They fed me. They weren't even Christians. But God and his providence took care of me. And I'm sure each of you, if you reflect, you may have something even more amazing. I'm sure you do. But we need the eyes of faith to reflect and even be captivated as we read it in the word and in the history of the world or in your own history. These divine, if you will, surprises. God is at work all the time, but sometimes it is incredible what we see him doing. How he aligns the right person at the right moment just so to accomplish his purposes. And we worship him for that. Psalm 103.19, his sovereignty rules over all. A beautiful verse to remind us to see God's hand in everything. Remember Cooper, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. There's never really a day of small things. God is at work all the time. Advancing, reversing, stopping, starting, aligning everything for his purpose. And we know that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Familiar words, but may God give us the faith to really lay hold of this truth. And this woman is an illustration of how God can care for his people. Just at the moment when she was being spoke about, she shows up with her son, not even by herself, with the boy that was raised from the dead, and there they stand in front of the king. I'm sure Gehazi's mouth dropped open. He couldn't believe it. And even his words, My lord, O king, this is the woman. He was shocked. Verse 6. When the king asked the woman, she related it to him. So the king appointed for her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the produce of the field from the day that she left, even until now, which was how many years? Seven. He wanted to hear the story from her own lips. So it says, and she related it to him. She probably told the same story that Gehazi did of how God, by the hand of Elisha, had resurrected her dead son. And the son was there. She's pointing to him. This is what God did. He was a lot older now, seven years older. Had her son not died and been resurrected, would she have even been before the king? Would he have listened to her? You talk about a divine reversal. She had lost her son, got him back, and that was... Maybe in God's providence, the very thing that got her the, the king's ear. So seven years before, or maybe ten, or however many years it was since the boy was had died and was resurrected, God used that incident to get the king's ear, to get his attention. Praise God for his wonderful work. Now, notice the word here in verse 6, restore. In verse 5, we heard he had restored to life. He had restored to life. Elisha restored to life. And now the king says, restore all that was hers. I love when the scripture repeats words to get our attention. The king heard how God had restored life to the boy emphatically three times. Restored, restored, restored. And he says, well, restore 
restore all of this back to her. Is Jehoram trying to one-up Elisha? I don't know. Regardless, we see the hand of God behind King Jehoram, the evil king doing good. Lesson 7, the final one. Behold the generosity of God by the hand of an evil king. Behold the generosity of God to his child, to his people, by the hand of an evil king. We, we learned it in Genesis 50. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God can take the evil king and make him give blessings to the Shunammite woman. God does that for his people. He works all things together for good. God was so generous, not only to restore her house and her field, but he gave and he declared that this certain officer would be the calculator of all the money that would have uh, come forth from her crops, apparently, from the fields. She scored big time. She was so blessed by God from the hand of the king and this certain officer. And did you note again, the king appointed The king appointed. Again, the king's appointments are only fulfilling God's purposes. And even this phrase, a certain officer, I tried to find from the Hebrew, I couldn't figure it out. But at least in the English language, a specific officer was given to take care of her and make sure that she got her house, her field, and all the money. It's amazing, the generosity of God. Well, just in review, and then if you have questions, we learned today, behind every appointment by man is the Lord's purpose. And second, by illustration, Israel was broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Romans 11.20 Lesson three, woe unto those who continue to resist the Lord's rebukes. Another famine came, a seven-year famine. Lesson four, like the Shunammite, let us practice prompt obedience. Even today, if the Lord convicts you during the sermon, I got to get up, I got to send an email, I got to make something right, I got to change what I'm doing. Let's have that prompt obedience. Lesson five, beware of being merely curious about the things of God, yet maintaining an evil heart. You can read the Bible, you can study it, and you can listen to sermons You can be like Ben Franklin hearing George Whitfield and be unconverted. Or like Herod hearing John the Baptist and Jesus out of curiosity or wanting to see a miracle or to talk to the miracle worker, to hear some amazing story. Don't be like Jehoram and be merely curious yet maintaining an evil heart, which is what chapter 3 described him at the end of his life. He's summarized as a man who had an evil heart. Not a believing heart, an evil heart. Lesson six, be captivated as you read the book of Providence. Again, what are the odds that this woman would show up on the very day, the very minute that the king and Gehazi were speaking of her and the son that were resurrected? God's providence is amazing. We worship him. We trust him. We have faith. We pray, Lord, do your work. His arm is not short. He can align everything just as he wants to according to his providential plan. And finally, behold the generosity of God by the hand of an evil king. She got back way more than she expected. 
She would have been grateful to have her house and her field or her land, but she got all the money of seven years profit that that field would have given. And maybe the king or someone else had been farming it and they had to pay it back or it just came out of the king's treasury. We don't know. So so thus we've seen the Shunammite cared for by God. Any questions or comments that you have this morning? Yes. Oh, two. Thank you. That's Romans 11.20. Israel was broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. A great verse and a great warning to all of us. When we read about the unbelief, we cannot be arrogant and think, well, I'd never do that. As I walked in today, I, I remembered people that were here that, that, that professed and because of their unbelief have denied the faith. We must persevere by faith, not be conceited, but fear. Fear God and be warned. Yes, thank you. Okay, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is profitable for teaching. Lord, would you lodge in our minds, in our hearts, the truths from Scripture. We are amazed as we see your hand of providence, your powerful hand, bringing this Shunammite and her son to stand right before the king and Gehazi just when she was being spoken about. Lord, we see your hand in our lives. We see how you protect us and preserve us. A few seconds, we might have been dead in a car accident by danger. How you've blessed us with people and jobs and situations and money. Lord, our salvation, how you saved the most unlikely. Lord, how you use the weak and the frail to, to accomplish your will. We stand amazed at you, our God. We worship you. We pray that you would increase our faith, that we would put to death unbelief in our hearts, and that we would have prompt obedience honoring you. We thank you for your kindness to us, and bless, O God, for your own glory, these words to your people, for Christ's sake. Amen.